Hi, and welcome to Talking Startups at NYU. I'm your host, Giovanni Fumé. I first became interested in the entrepreneurial journey when I began spending time at the NYU Leslie eLab and witnessing the roller coaster like nature of starting a new business. To examine the condition of the entrepreneur is to witness a constant progression of peaks and valleys, successes and failures, and I found this process really interesting. So in this series, I'm going to be talking to entrepreneurs from across our university to investigate the human stories behind businesses big and small. This week, I'm talking to Guy Story, the founding CTO of Audible, a company which has become a household name for providing the highest quality audiobooks in other associated products. Audible is an older company than most of those whose founders I interview on this show, and this episode is sort of an anthropological study into the changing identity of what it is to be an entrepreneur. To start a technology business today is to take part in a totally different type of experience than it was in the mid-80s when Audible was founded. So in this episode, you will get a snapshot of how one of the biggest companies developed in one of the now hottest markets, namely audio, and how the ecosystem has changed around it through the decades. Hi, Guy. Thank you for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Good morning. You're the founding CTO of Audible. Something that I know is quite important to you, or well, I've seen your TED talk about it, is storytelling. So I'd like to start with your story before Audible. I know you were working at Bell Labs, uh, which for anyone who doesn't know is an iconic institution involved in a lot of important innovations. So what was that time like? Well, it, it it's interesting. Yeah, folks, I don't think these days know what Bell Labs was. Mm-hmm. Bell Labs got started in the or you know in the first half of the 20th century, um, actually, and became this super famous and effective industrial research place. Um, and actually, it was started in Manhattan. I don't know if folks know this, but um, West Beth, which is uh, now kind of this arts um, building over on uh, Bethune and West Street in the West Village, was where it started. And in World War II, they were, they were doing a lot of um, uh, research and secret stuff there. And there was a concern that if Manhattan got bombed, they might bomb uh, Bell Labs. And so they moved it out into the middle of New Jersey and <clears throat> to a sort of a, an almost non-existent town called Murray Hill. And out in that building, the transistor was invented. The first telecommunications satellite was invented. The C programming language, the Unix operating system, which people may have heard of, yeah. were all invented in Murray Hill, where this this location, which is where I worked. So there was this sort of long, hallowed history of researchers out there doing stuff, um, you know, pure research. And um, AT, the famous split up of AT and T happened in right like right before I joined, and <clears throat> that sort of kicked off a. Uh, long, slow evolution of Bell Labs sort of changing from being this kind of hallowed, pure research place into something that was much more of a conventional research tied to the company's businesses, more business-driven. Um, having said that, I, I feel as though uh, for most of the time I was there, I was still experiencing that mm. kind of famous, cool place. I mean, for my own personal story, is that 
I, I was not, I've never been somebody who was going super deep on pure research topics. I always kind of felt like we should build a thing and get it out in the world and have people use it, whatever that means. And so um, my time spent at Bell Labs was um, mostly working with small teams, two, three, four people, and we were trying to build some kind of system that we, and then we thought there was, you know, it ought to be commercialized. And um, in research at the time, it was a very uh, well-known, there was a phrase, technology transfer problem, Mm. which was that you've got all these smart people, um, not that I'm saying I'm smart, but uh, everybody else was smart, and you got all these people inventing things, but then what do you do with them? It's very hard. And it's kind of, you know, today it's like, you know, it's the startup scene, like you got an idea, like how the heck do you get it? How do you you succeed? How do you get funding? How do you get customers? How do you survive? And uh, the sort of version of it back then, which is sort of pre-startup, was you've got people who are being supported by a large corporation. And then, um, and this was happening at Xerox Park and IBM uh, Watson Center and, and AT&T Bell Labs and, you know, other places scattered around the world, actually. And uh, a trick was how the heck do you make a business out of these, out of these things or how do you couple that entrepreneurial spirit, which wasn't labeled that yet, how do you harness it and direct it in a way that you can actually come up with a, a, a business idea mm-hmm. that makes sense? It was just hard to get to figure out what to do with it. Is that kind of when you decided that you wanted to become an entrepreneur? Well, I didn't know what I, you know, I, I, yeah. a lot of my career is I've not really known what I was trying yeah. to do. And I didn't know at the time, except one thing happened is AT&T created a venture uh, this is kind of an early idea. They've created something called AT&T Ventures, and their I, their initial goal was to try to get stuff out of the labs mm-hmm. into businesses. At that time, this is late 80s, early 90s, there were essentially no startups in on the East Coast. Everything was happening in Silicon Valley. It was, it was kind of the place where it started and largely was going on there in the United States. And the ventures folks at at and I got to know some of them because we were trying to figure out how do we productize some of these systems. And then the founder of Audible got venture, him, himself, he got venture funding from a couple of venture funds, one of them being Kleiner Perkins, which is super famous. And this funded. is before you guys had started working? This, this is before, before, yeah, I'm still, you know, uh, working at Bell Labs, trying to figure out what, what you know, how is it all gonna work? And, um, the the you know the original founder of of of, uh, of Audible who was a writer um, and is a writer Don Katz um, also NYU alum right? uh, also NYU alum exactly uh, the business school um, then they put out the word they were trying to hire the the original management team and one of the ventures guys from AT and T recommended me you know I could in retrospect say well my you know sort of entrepreneurial spirit that I was showing within Bell Labs got recognized by one of the ventures guys who had since left and had gone off to work in a venture in a venture fund um, himself but he recommended me to them and so I joined and this is seems like so long ago I joined in uh, June of 1996 and it was the first East Coast startup that Kleiner Perkins, ever funded. They essentially, they, they were, in fact, there was pressure to move the company to the West Coast because there was technology involved. But it was a content and technology combo. Why and did you guys decide to stay <clears throat> on the East Coast? The, the argument that Don made was 
that it was a content business in the end, and uh, most of the content was coming from book publishers and writers, and that that, com- that industry was centered in New York City, yeah. and that there were a lot of technology folks on the East Coast, for example, from, you know, in Bell Labs and, you know, other research, uh, other uh, technology companies, say, out in New Jersey or in the tri-state area. And we could recruit folks. I would say, though, it was a bit hard to recruit folks. You know, some folks didn't want to leave that comfortable um, world that they were in. And there was no startup culture yet here. So, um, it was it was a uh, it was a bit it was a bit dicey early on because the pool of people sort of didn't exist. So you, you were working at Bell Labs, which was really well funded. I heard you describe it as saying you could get as many pencils as you'd like. And uh, <laughs> did I say that? Yeah. And then um, <laughs> yeah, there was this storeroom where they just you know they had transistors and pencils and uh, you know all the equipment you and, could want. Yeah. <laughs> but when you transitioned and you were in the early days of Audible, you were bootstrapping it. How was that transition? Did you like this new way of operating? Was that something that excited you? <laughs> it was ex- it was certainly exciting, and I but I do remember I did have this distinct feeling like wait a minute, I have nobody to talk to. I got nobody to ask a question. I, I got, you know, I, you know, questions I could have asked any of those folks who were, who were members of technical staff down the hallway about anything related to audio compression or speech technology or, uh, um, you know, uh, programming languages or devices. I, you know, they're not going to talk to me now. I can't, I can't talk to them about any of this. They yeah. can't, they cannot talk to me. So um, it was a bit it was tricky. And one of the things I learned was part of your job is to take the investment, whether it's your investment of your own time or the investment of your funders, but get the maximum benefit out of that investment. Don't spend a lot of money on super fancy offices. Don't reinvent things. Use open source software when you can, as long as you don't get in trouble in terms of licensing down the road. And, um, Try not to spin your wheels, like, you know, make every movement count. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that I learned through this process because I really felt under the gun, like we have to build a thing and we can't just fool around. And so every step we take, I wanted it to be forward, a forward step uh, to the degree that we, we could. I mean, sometimes you just don't know. So you were in the first days of Audible. And it's not like today where there's so much enterprise software about and you can really leverage a lot of other pieces of software. You basically had to build out all the software and all the hardware. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, sure. And, you know, sometimes when I when I talk about this, I feel like, well, you know, like when I went to school, we had to walk in barefoot, you know, and, and for, for 10 miles in yeah. the snow, to, you know. So... I think a challenge is to understand where you are in any moment in time. So we're in a time now when um, everybody has a connected device and connectivity itself is, is, you know, roughly ubiquitous. You can connect to the Internet pretty much anywhere. So what you do in terms of innovation or disruption or whatever the thing is that you're trying to make happen, it needs to build on where you are now. And that now is way different from it was back, you know, back in the horse and buggy days, which is when Audible started. I mean, and it is kind of, it's 
can be hard to remember when there was no Wi-Fi. Uh, there was no broadband to so, homes. It was all dial-up, you know, with modems, if anybody remembers that. The, the ones and, that made the noise. Yeah, they That's made the I noise. Like, yeah. You're yeah. right, so you could all do that. And there were no, you know, there were no devices. And there was no... I, my memory may may be a little fuzzy on this, but I actually don't think there was any on online digital media store where you paid for anything. Um, so, for example, we licensed an online e-commerce system, you know, that had a shopping cart, and you know, the, there were very few of them, almost none actually. Um, Google had had a system, which I think was called Google Commerce, I think, but they were sunsetting it. Microsoft was building a system, but it hadn't been released yet. I mean, it was really crazy early. So we licensed a system at the time, which I still remember making the decision, knowing that it was not going to go that super smoothly. And one of the things was the system insisted on charging shipping. Um, if you bought something, it you know the flow of checkout required shipping to be charged. And we were selling a digital good. There was no shipping. Mm. And we had to get them to patch the, we had to get the people back in, you know, the, the development teams for the product to patch, uh, create a patch for us that took the shipping requirement out. So it's just stupid stuff like that sometimes um, that happened. On the other hand, we could control everything. Uh, so, and, and in those days, you know, we were kind of trying to figure out what the rules were about things like how how many devices could you have or how did you protect the device how did you protect the content but you kind of <clears throat> were the first people to even really come up with a DRM system right there wasn't many you around have before any that. inclination of how big audio content in general would become and just for some background from 2004 to 2015 the amount of audiobooks published went from 3.4 million to 35 million and and you also worked on a little bit on Alexa. So did you have an understanding at the time about how big voice, whether it be audiobooks or whether it be spoken tasks to a machine, would be a really important technology in this decade? That's a really good question. I would say n no, not really. Uh, there were we had folks, uh, well-known folks in the in marketing, who believed that the market for audiobooks was would re remain small uh, permanently. That it was just kind of a it was a niche. It was permanently a niche, and it's still small compared with the book, you know, the book market. But um, but as you say, it has really it's really become a known thing. And when Audible started, it was. It really was a niche thing due to a number of things. One of them, there were lots of business problems with audiobooks at the time. Uh, they were way too expensive to produce and to create the physical product. And uh, so the to put a cassette, put it in a yeah, packaging, and yeah, I mean, and it wouldn't be a cassette. I mean, they, you know, they in fact, if you, you know, a typical book might be. 10, 12, 20 hours long, which would be multiple cassettes. Mm. And so now you've got this, you know, multiple cassettes per product, and then you've got to package it, um, and then you've got to, you know, ship them all off to the bookstores. They're expensive for the bookstore, and uh, they're expensive for the end customer. And so you ended up with the uh, publishers not investing in this very niche kind of business much. They wouldn't produce audiobooks for 
uh, most of their books that they would create. Only the big, you know, the Stephen Kings and the, you know, John Grishams of the world would get an audiobook uh, created for their product. And it would be some little tiny corner in the back of uh, Barnes & Noble at the time where you could find the audiobook selection, and it was small. Or there were a couple of companies that would rent you them, and, you know, you'd have to pack them all up in, in a box, and then you'd get the next set. And so it was just a, it was a broken business from the economic standpoint. And Don really believed that listening to a book that's well-performed and it's a book that you are enjoy is, you know, you get in the zone and it is, it is not like any other experience. And he's totally right. I mean, most Audible customers would, you know, talk about those who were commuting in cars would talk about getting home and sitting in the driveway because they can't, they can't turn it off, you know, and go inside and continue their day. So, you know, it, it's really an, addict, an addictive thing. And um, so, a, uh, a, you know, a, a big part of the success of Audible was addressing those things. Unlimited inventory, lower cost, um, and, uh, um, you know, flexibility. You know, you didn't have to, you didn't have, to have this, this stack of cassettes or stack of CDs and you're fumbling around and trying to keep track of them and all, and all that. It's just, you know, all the, the entire audiobook is in one small device. And so it seems obvious now at the time because there were no devices. It it seemed um like a big a big leap. Revolution. Yeah. So, how did you start getting customers to use this product at the time? <laughs> well, as I've said many times, um uh, you know, as the first I'll say let me step back and say as the first technology guy in the company, um, you know, uh, surrounded by folks from, from publishing, and particularly in those days where people were not as familiar with technology, nobody had a smartphone, there was no Wi-Fi, nobody would set up a router, no, none of that stuff. Um, you know, the technology seemed like a real mystery to everybody in the company, except for me. And I remember somebody saying, I remember the CFO telling me, he said, I'm really glad you're here because I think they were all sitting around. I mean, the three of, uh, of them that preceded me at Audible were sitting around saying, how the heck are we going to do this? Because it seems it's such a mystery, mm -hmm. the technology part. But if you're a technology person, you know, technology is technology. I mean, it's cool and interesting and fun and, you know, it's and it can be hard to invent a thing. But it's also, you know, makes sense to you because you're that kind of person. What's hard is getting a customer. And, um that was, I still think of that as the hardest thing. If you are a startup, you basically need a customer. Whether your customer is another business or whether it's a co consumer, you have to figure out how to get people to sign on. Mm. And so there were lots of um, questions about this this and uh, at Audible. And I, I would say the most effective um, thing and, and it was not me who came up with this, but it was uh, the recognition that we should partner with companies that had broad customer reach. They touched customers. And um, come in, get a business partnership with them so that they would help us get customers and where we would both win. And so we had an early partnership with Amazon, and uh, we had a partnership with Sony for a while. Um, we, you know, the, the MP3 player guys that were succeeding, they were a big, they were a big, um, uh, partner. And then the, you know, the kind of rocket that we happened to be in the right place at the right time was Apple. Okay. Um, and the iPod, which was, you know, its own kind of serendipitous, uh, opportunity for us. 
Audible is a household name and basically has the monopoly on audiobooks. As far as I know, it's the only company that comes to mind when I want to buy an audiobook. But I know you've had some hard times along the way. And I think it's interesting because in my mind, when you tell the story and my little history of uh, technology is that you kind of entered the market too early. Uh, for the people I talk to, it seems that in these really disruptive markets, it's actually the second entrant that can leverage the failures of the first. So um, can you tell us? First of all, did you ever feel like you were too early and and those hard times? How did you stay committed to the idea and, and what was it like going through all those ups and downs? <laughs> um, it's interesting. What I would try to explain to people that, you know, my closest friends or family, what I was doing in this new company, which kind of had a secret product. We were Audible was not saying what 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 it was doing or what it was going to do whether whether it was that it was building a device or anything but you know I would talk to a, fo- a couple of folks about it who who could be trusted and and you know the non-technical people it took them a while to get their head around it because it was new you know you were going to buy a digital thing and then you had this thing that had no moving parts that would connect to your computer and like what so but folks at uh, Bell Labs and I talked to maybe one person, but you know, they instantly knew, they instantly got it. So I think that both from the business folks at Audible and for myself, this looked like an obvious thing. Like, of course, you know, unlimited inventory, low cost, convenience, selection, portability, this is a no brainer. So, you know, we were all pretty jacked up on on the a belief in the concept. It hit us six months after we launched that we mm. were too early because then the trick of how do you get a customer, you know, hit us in the face. Yeah. So we were hiring and, and ramping up and assuming success after we launched and there was a lot of hype and, you know, we won a design award and, you know, we were in the Forbes list of top, whatchamacallit, companies and so on. But then, you know, nobody's buying the devices and they don't know what they are and it's hard to get to them. And the ingredients of success hadn't quite kicked in. And the fact, the reality of an unknown little company based in New Jersey selling a device that nobody understood, try to market a niche product, you know, that those are all the ingredients of yeah. hard. Okay. And it was early because nobody had a device of any sort at all and nobody knew what it was. So we were way too early. We laid off like half the company when we realized, um, you know, our burn rate was too high. We weren't going to make it. And we had to kind of ramp back, cut back to critical people and critical functions and sort of regroup and uh, figure out how to how to ride it out. And, you know, it was a combination of getting some additional investment like the Microsoft investment. So I think, you know, the folks late at uh, Microsoft in particular, was the folks in the ebook business where they were spinning up a new thing. They, they like, believed okay, in that, laid off you know, a bunch in the vision. Of my personnel and so they thought it was, it was worth give us having more? a partner who was really come? serious <laughs> about <laughs> it. Um, well, you know, interestingly, as, uh, that, uh, you know, somebody that they could work with Microsoft was spinning up at the time for It would help their ebook business. An ebook initiative. They had invested, they were investing themselves in ebooks, in ebook technology, 
you know, there was a time actually when you could get an ebook reader from Microsoft, you know, software. There was a company or two that made devices. You could buy the ebooks, Microsoft ebook e uh, format from Amazon at one point, I believe. But at the time, that group thought that audiobooks was worthy. So it was a, I think it was, you know, folks in Microsoft were like us. They said, this is a no brainer. And they thought we were serious. They could see that we were serious about this. We were not. We didn't think this was uh, easy, mm. and we rec we were we recognized the challenges. The challenges were: you got to protect the content, and you need portability, and you've got to have a big library, and you there's just a bunch of stuff you got to do. And um, it's um, if you do those, it's going to eventually work. Well, thanks so much for coming. This was an awesome conversation. You're welcome. Um, I, hope, I really I enjoyed it, this. I hope it was good. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. So thanks for staying through the whole episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to follow us on social media, just look up NYU Entrepreneurial Institute, Facebook, Twitter. We'll be posting new episodes going forward. Please feel free to follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Um, and feel free to reach out to me directly with any advice or questions. If you're an entrepreneur at NYU and would like to participate, my email is talkingstartups at wnyu.com. That's talkingstartups at wnyu.com. And I hope to have you here next week. Thank you so much.